So many of you know, a couple of months ago I was on sabbatical, and one of the things I did during this two-month time of sabbatical is I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went to All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I took um, Ruth McKenzie. She came with me, our Minister of Worship Arts. We were really excited to go and learn from All Souls in Tulsa about the racial justice and the multicultural work they're doing, and they just added a third worship service, so we were really curious to learn about that as well. But the real gift of this time in Tulsa was not uh, what I expected. The real gift from this time in Tulsa came from a lunch conversation I had with a longtime friend from Tulsa. We were sitting there together eating at a little restaurant in Tulsa talking about leadership and staying focused and staying grounded, staying present when there's so much going on, so much in our lives. She's also a leader in a large organization, so we were just talking through these things together. And she mentioned to me, she said, Justin, I've been using this meditation app for her phone, and uh, it's called Headspace, and it's been great. I kind of probably scrunched my face up a little bit, like, because ah. let me tell you, I believe deeply, I deeply believe in the importance of having a regular spiritual practice. For about two decades now, I have either written or written and then a little bit of prayer almost every morning as a way to ground myself in the day, to imagine the landscape of the day and who I will encounter and how I want to be in that space. I'm a believer in spiritual practice. And a couple of years ago, I thought, hey, I'm going to add meditation into this mix as well. That'll be awesome. A little meditation, a little prayer, a little writing. It didn't work for me at all. My mind would race off. The first minute I would sit down, my mind would race off making a to-do list and you know, having conversations with the people in my head and then replaying events from the day before. Didn't work. Author Dan Harris describes his attempts at meditation when he first began, and I laughed out loud when I read them because it reminded me so much of my own. So I'll share that with you. Here's what he says in his book. It's a, it's a good book. I would recommend it to you. It's a book called 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, reduced stress without losing my edge, and found self-help that actually works. Here's what he says. I'd sit down, right, and start to focus on the breath. In, out, in. Shrubbery. I like that word. Why, from an evolutionary perspective, do we like the smell of our own filth? And then a voice, get in the game, dude. In. Out. Oh, man, my butt hurts. Let me just shift around a little bit in this seat. Ah, oh, in. Out. Oh, an idea for an old school hip hop show, Rap Van Winkle. And so it went. And so it went until the alarm went off, by which point it felt like an eternity had passed, Dan Harris says. So that was my experience with meditation, something very similar. So I'm at this lunch with my friend, and she must see this scrunched up look on my face. And I'm like, you know, meditation. But she lovingly comes at it again and says, with a lot of compassion, Justin, seriously, just try this app, this app called Headspace. And because I was on sabbatical and I was in this mental and spiritual space of slowing down and wanting to take time to examine my life and my ministry and the habits in my life, I said to her, okay, okay, I'll try it. So I came back to Minnesota, I downloaded the app, and I discovered that I kind of liked the guy who gently uh, guided me through the meditation. 
So I did 10 minutes a day for 10 days. And then I did 15 minutes a day for 15 days. That was harder. I wanted to give up. Some days I just stopped, didn't do the whole time. And then 20 minutes a day for 20 days. And then some days that just felt impossible. But mostly at that point, I started to think, you know, I, I can do this. And I started to notice little changes in my life. And now four months later, I'm still doing 20 minutes a day. And I mostly like it. I mostly like it. I'm a complete beginner. I'm a complete beginner in this. But the difference now from before is that I have a guide, right? Every day, my podcast teacher, Andy is his name. He's a former Buddhist monk. He gently guides me through the day's meditation. And really, he's more than just a guide. He's a personal trainer for me, for the gym of my mind, right? Because meditation is serious brain exercise, and it helps to have a trainer. You know, if you want to do a big workout in the gym, you might just go in there and start ripping, you know, ripping machines around and doing stuff, but you're going to hurt yourself unless you have a trainer there with you. Meditation is repetition after repetition of trying to tame the runaway train of the mind. That's what author Dan Harris says. He says, wrestling your mind to the ground, boom, repeatedly hauling your attention back to the breath in the face of the inner onslaught of thoughts requires genuine grit. So a teacher, even if it's a teacher via podcast, can share tips, tools, gentle reminders, compassionate clues about how to do it. In fact, I love these moments in, my, in the podcast when my teacher says to me, I'm you know, sitting there in the chair, I don't, sit on, I don't do the cross-legged thing or sit on a little cushion on the floor, it's just in a chair. He says, as I'm listening, he says, it would be perfectly, he's British too, by the way, so imagine this in a British accent. He's like, it'd be perfect, I can't do a British accent. He'd be like, it'd be perfectly normal if your mind had wandered off right about now. I'm like, how did he know? <laughs> and he says, you know, as soon as you've been distracted, just bring your attention back to your breath. And my teacher reminds me at the start of every meditation that it brings benefits both to the practitioner, me, and then those around me who benefit when I have a greater sense of compassion and awareness and can see my emotions more clearly and relate to them in different ways. So in the third month, I'll just tell you a few more things about this meditation, then we're going to loop back to Louis C.K. here. In the third month of meditation, the practice was to focus on the body, specifically on transitions, right? So the practice was during the day, so 20 minutes of meditation, and then during the day, pay attention to those moments from like standing here to moving, and then from moving to stopping, from sitting down to standing up, standing up to sitting down. That was the practice. And the question was, how present could I be during those moments of transition? And I'm wondering, just like curious, as you came in here this morning, how many of you could really tell me in detail like, what it was like when you sat down in the pew? So the answer for me, I don't know what your answer is, the answer for me was like, I was not very present to those moments. I would get in my car or sit on the bus and then on the ride home be like, I don't even remember sitting down. I don't even remember getting in the car. And then on the drive home, I'd start to think, I'm really going to pay attention to what my body is doing when I get out of the car, when I get home. So I'm living in the future, I'm not in the moment, but I'm thinking, here's what I'm gonna do when I get home. And then I'd be out of the car and up the stairs to my house thinking, holy cow, I don't remember what it felt like getting out of the car. Now, I should say, if you're injured or have chronic pain, you know that you're much more tuned into your body. Of course you are. 
But I couldn't believe how often my inner narrator, my thoughts, distracted me from the experience of being in my body. I didn't beat myself up when this happened, getting all judgy and mean on myself. Instead, I thought, isn't that curious? I have a circus in my mind. (laughs) And the clowns and their constant chatter pull me away from the present moment. And then sometimes, halfway up the stairs, on my way home, when I'd be home, I would turn around and actually go back in the car and sit down and reenact the whole thing so I could say, oh, that's what my body was doing. That's what my leg did. That's what my arm did. Isn't that amazing? I didn't notice any of that. Like I said, I'm a beginner at this. But I understand that the point of meditation is to actually see the rushing stream of thoughts and comparisons and desires and dislikes and emotions that race through our head and to give ourselves just a bit of headspace so we can respond to our thoughts rather than just react to them. For example, when I catch myself distracted in a thought, I can take a breath and say, oh, how curious. Here I am in this room full of people, maybe some ministers, and I've just been comparing myself to them and to other senior ministers. That's not helpful. I need to be right here, awake in this moment. Or I might catch myself in thought and say, oh, how curious. I've just been lost in thought thinking about going bald. (laughs) Yeah, I know, you probably thought I had more profound thoughts than that. Sometimes I do. But if I don't see those thoughts as little bursts of brain energy and not anything real, and then I continue to react to them and to spiral further and further away from the present moment, then I'm either lost way in the future, well, I'm going to be bald in two years, or way in the past, I remember when I had long hair and a ponytail and it was thick and awesome, but not in the moment. I don't really worry about my hair that much. Every once in a while, I just be like, wow, I'm thinking about that. Meditation, any spiritual practice, really, is meant to increase our awareness, to wake us up to the present moment. As Dan Harris writes, according to the Buddha, and listen to this, this is the heart of it, according to the Buddha, we have three habitual responses to everything we experience. Here they are. We want it, we reject it, or we zone out. Cookies, I want. Mosquitoes, I reject. The safety instructions the flight attendants read aloud on the airplanes, I zone out. Mindfulness, in Buddhist teaching, mindfulness is a fourth option, a way to view the contents of our mind with non-judgmental remove. The goal of meditation and mindfulness is not to be zoned out, cross-legged on the floor, completely detached from the world. The goal through practice is to become aware of the onslaught of thoughts in our minds that just keep churning out, to note them, to see them clearly, to come back to the breath, the body, the present moment, to see reality more clearly. So here's where I want to loop back to the Louis C.K. interview. Are you following me? you got this whole Buddhist mindfulness meditation piece, and now we're going back to Louis C.K. because these pieces connect deeply. If meditation is about moving on a continuum of awareness from less awareness of the fire hose of thoughts in our head to more awareness of the fire hose of thoughts in our heads so that we can actually see reality more clearly, then I would suggest that the racial justice journey we're on as a congregation has a similar trajectory. 
Our path of awakening has to do with beginning to see the daily onslaught of racism and whiteness that lives in us and around us. And I believe it's a spiritual practice to identify whiteness and racism. It's the same kind of mental muscle used in meditation. And like meditation, it's helpful to have a coach, which is why we've been working with Dr. Heather Hackman. This might make more sense to you if you look in your order of service and on the back of your bulletin, there's this thing called the moving walkway that's printed back there. This is one of the tools that Dr. Heather Hackman, our racial justice trainer and consultant, has shared with us as we educate ourselves about race, racism, and whiteness. The moving walkway, and you see racism in these arrows, that's the moving walkway. The moving walkway is racism. It is the racism that is baked into our country, the racism that still targets people of color, that still harms the humanity of all of us. If you live in this country by default, you are on that moving walkway. It is the stream of racism that is still alive and thriving in this country, and it affects all of us. Some of us benefit from that, many don't. And the question is, the question that Heather posed to us in the training and asked us again and again in different ways is, are we moving with the walkway, perpetuating racism? So it doesn't mean you're running with it, you could just be standing there, right? The, the walkway's moving, and that would be a one or a two or a three. Or are we standing still on the walkway, taking an occasional step against the moving walkway? That's a four or a five. Or are we doing something dangerous, as Elaine said, and actually walking against the moving walkway, like a six, seven, or eight on that moving walkway map that Heather lays out? So think about this interview with Louis C.K. I know some of you are probably still digesting the moving walkway, but come back to the interview with Louis C.K. In my experience, racism and whiteness can be difficult to see when you are white because this country was founded and built on a myth, on a lie that says white skin is better than brown skin or black skin or any other color of skin. A privileging of whiteness is baked into the DNA of our country. If you're white, though, it's hard to see. If you're a person of color, you see it everywhere all the time. And even though you're on the walkway as a person of color, you're moving against the walkway all the time. But here's what makes it challenging. Whiteness and white privilege doesn't want to be seen or noted or called out. Let me slow down for just a second here. Let me give you a quick definition of white privilege, just so we're all on the same page here, and then we're coming back to Louis C.K. Tim Wise, a white anti-racist author and educator, says white privilege refers to any advantage opportunity, benefit, head start, or general protection from negative social mistreatment, which persons deemed white will typically enjoy, but which others will generally not enjoy. These benefits can be material, such as greater opportunities in the labor market or greater net worth due to a history in which whites had greater opportunity to accumulate wealth than persons of color, so the benefits can be material, social, or psychological. So in this interview, Louis starts talking about whiteness and white privilege. And he goes on for a few minutes. And if you watch the interview, there's this moment where Jay Leno's like, huh, 
Right, and he tries to turn the conversation to have Louis C.K. talk about something else. And probably Louis C.K. has this whole routine scripted in his head and he's going to do it regardless. But it's an interesting reflection on how whiteness wants to stop talking about whiteness. Because Jay Leno says to Louis C.K., and so the holidays are coming up. What are you doing for the holidays? Like, boom, totally. Let's talk about anything except whiteness. But Louis keeps pushing against the walkway challenging whiteness and racism, using humor. And this is amazing. In three minutes, watch the whole clip. I didn't share all the clip with you. There's some, Louis C.K. is a little raunchy, so there's some language in there I couldn't share with you. But using humor, Louis points to the historical context of this country and the reality of slavery and the fact that racism and racist practices continue to this day. In three minutes, he does a full-on assault on whiteness, and he makes it visible. He makes it visible. It's incredibly powerful because when whiteness remains invisible, when whiteness remains invisible, we can maintain the myth of meritocracy, that if you work hard, you can get ahead, and that true choice and freedom is available to all. But that's not true. Nikima Levy-Pounds, a law professor at the University of St. Thomas, a prophetic voice in our own community, recently shared her thoughts about making whiteness visible in the Star Tribune blog post. And she wrote, If we are serious about getting to the root of the problems that exist, we must acknowledge the role that white privilege plays in maintaining the status quo and keeping the poor and oppressed locked out of access to economic opportunity. She goes on to say, white privilege allows individuals and institutions to place blame on families, cultures, and communities for the challenges they face without ever having to examine the roles that structural and institutional racism have played and do play in shaping public policy, laws, and practices that unfairly harm and exclude those on the margins of society. So here's what I want you to hear church. For white people, naming whiteness, seeing it, seeing it at work in our lives, in our community, this community, in the world, it can be a kind of spiritual practice. Like a meditation practice, it's about noticing the flood of whiteness all around you and then starting to see it and to name it in a way, in a way that's done with curiosity and gentleness. Like, isn't that, wow, How curious. I didn't see that before, but now I do. And then we can start to move against the walkway of racism. I want to be really clear with you this morning about this point as well. I do not think, and this is where the conversation gets derailed so often, I do not think white people are bad or awful people. But many of us have been born into a system that we do not see or fully understand, and yet we benefit from it. So the practice is to begin to recognize whiteness and to give up some of the benefits of whiteness so that all might flourish. This is not a new practice by any stretch of the imagination. Back in 1846, the black physician James McCune Smith told his wealthy white friend Garrett Smith, Garrett was a part of the Secret Six. You remember a couple of weeks ago I preached about abolitionist John Brown and his group that funded him. So Garrett Smith is one of those folks who funded John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. So this black physician, James McCune Smith, said to Garrett Smith that before equality could be attained, 
there had to be a profound shift in American consciousness. The heart of the whites must be changed, thoroughly, entirely, permanently changed. He went on to suggest that whites had to understand what it was like to be black, I would add, or Native American, or anything other than white. They had to shed their whiteness as a sign of superiority and renounce their belief in skin color as a marker of aptitude and social status. That's 1846. It's amazing to read about these black and white men. That's primarily what it was. There were some native people who 200 years ago were trying to dismantle whiteness and the institution of slavery. Many of you have asked, or I, I've read your minds, and I know the question is there, I think it's there, where are we going with our racial justice journey? Well, I'm laying out the path this morning, the path I see for our faith community, and it is this, that we move as an institution, as a body, from a four or a five on that walkway to an eight on the walkway. This is the intention behind the journey, to run against the moving walkway of racism, to challenge white privilege on a regular basis, and to practice racial justice principles in this church. I want to be clear, this is not political work. This is not work about being politically correct. This is not feel-good work. It's actually dangerous work. It's soul work. It's spirit work. It's restoring our humanity work. And so I invite you to see this journey as one big spiritual practice, a spiritual practice of noticing and awakening to whiteness and the ways that whiteness is privileged, just like Louis C.K. did. And if you're funny or a comedian, you can do it even better. Because <laughs> humor can disarm a lot in a hurry. The practice, though, church, is to see whiteness in our language, our policies, our ministry, to see it, to name it, and to wrestle that runaway train down to the ground. May we do this work with deep compassion and loving hearts for ourselves and for all those we walk with. May it be so. Amen. And amen. <clears throat>